Iste, orning me, iwe, arwe, iginning bay, ewe, une, apical te, ermin se, iris se, onwe, ethe, asix bay, of way, e formed ray, orwe, ovenant ke, eology the. Now, how many, uh, how many of you know what I just said? Like three people. All right. Well, you are really, really good at pig Latin if you know what I just said. Uh, if I was hearing, I'd have no idea. But here, here's the key principle to understanding Pig Latin, in case you don't know the principle. You take the beginning consonant or consonant cluster of a word, and you move it to the end of the word, and then you add A. So covenant would be ovenant K. And theology would be eology the. And if a word begins with a vowel, you just add way or ye or A to the end of it. So explain would be explain way. Does that make sense? You got that? So here's what I said. This morning, we are beginning a new topical sermon series on the basics of covenant or reformed theology. My point in this weird little exercise is knowing the key principle makes pig Latin intelligible. The lights go on for you when you know the code, when you know the trick, when you know what it's all about. And sometimes studying the Bible is a little bit like pig Latin. Hearing Pig Latin, it can be difficult uh, to understand how all the pieces fit together into one big cohesive and comprehensible and compelling story. Okay, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the salvation that's found only in Him for the glory of God alone, that's the big point, okay? But how do all the other little details fit Is there a unifying principle or set of principles in Scripture that help interpret Scripture? Well, yes. And without knowing them, important doctrines will be misinterpreted or misunderstood. It doesn't mean we're not saved, doesn't mean we don't love Jesus, doesn't mean we're stupid, doesn't even mean that we're theological lightweights. But if we saw those unifying themes in Scripture... The gospel would be more beautiful, would be more enjoyable for us. This series, which I've titled Our Covenant-Keeping God, with the subtitle of Some Basics of Covenant or Reformed Theology, is going to be extensive. It's going to be long. Uh, But it's a basic topical series touching on many scriptures and doctrines that I hope transform you transform you. I'm hoping this series helps you see the unity between the old and new covenants and helps you interpret the Bible more faithfully. I hope you have a bunch of aha moments where the light just turns on and you're making connections. I'm hoping this series gives you a greater assurance of your salvation, a deeper comfort for your soul and greater confidence in God's unwavering love for you. I'm hoping this series deepens your love for God, deepens your love of His law and His word, and and induces you to greater obedience. In fact, if it pleases God to so move, and I hope He does, I'm hoping this series solidifies our identity as a church uh, and sets a clearer direction for our future of where we're headed. I hope that it helps us move to the next level of our collective growth health, and joy. So would you, would you pray for those things during this time? Uh, pray for this series and may greater unity and love of God come out of this series. 
So what's the unifying theme which coheres Scripture? What, what is it? Well, my aim in this series is to show you that God's sovereign covenants are the key to understanding Scripture. God's sovereign covenants. When you see covenants in the Bible and use the Bible's own framework of covenants to interpret the Bible, the dots are connected. Uh, I really like how author John T. Rhodes put it. He said this, Covenant is the theme that links the different books of the Bible to make them one united story, blazing through the Old Testament like a firework before exploding into full color in the coming of Christ. He's right. Pastors uh, Michael Brown and Zach Keel in their book Sacred Bond say this in their introduction. It is safe to say, therefore, that covenant is a vital aspect of Scripture. In fact, it is more accurate to state that covenant is the very fabric of Scripture. It is God's chosen framework for the Bible. Now, that's what this series is intended to show you. Brown and Keel add this. Listen closely. Covenant theology is not an abstract system imposed on the Bible, but the very structure and framework that naturally arises from Scripture itself as the drama of redemptive history unfolds from Genesis to Revelation. Covenant theology is the Bible's prescribed method of helping us interpret the Scriptures proper, properly. Covenant theology helps us to deepen our understanding of God's salvation of and communion with his people through the person and work of Christ. It is God's way of giving us the big picture of his plan of redemption and showing us that his word from beginning to end is consistent and not contradictory. Covenant is the key to understanding all of Scripture. Now, J.I. Packer is somewhat of a theological rock star, if you will. Uh, Time magazine ranked him in the top 25 most influential evangelicals. Listen to how strongly J.I. Packer put this. He said, quote, So biblical doctrine, first to last, has to do with covenantal relationships between God and man. End of quote. Uh, Packer continued and he said this, First... The gospel of God, the gospel of God is not properly understood till it is viewed within a covenantal frame. Second, the word of God, the word of God is not properly understood till it is viewed within a covenant frame. And third, the reality of God, the reality of God is not properly understood till it is viewed within a covenantal frame. Seeing the covenantal frame of Scripture can revolutionize the way that you understand Scripture, even the way that you understand the very gospel that you delight in. When I was in seminary years ago, I remember reading a book by David Mackay uh, titled The Bond of Love, God's Covenant Relationship with His Church, and it, it transformed me. It totally transformed me. As I was reading the book, I remember thinking, where has this been my entire life? And now I had been taught certain doctrines that Mackay's book presents, but not with the unifying covenantal theme of Scripture. So much changed for me when I saw the theological framework of covenants in Scripture. My love for God, assurance of salvation, and understanding of the gospel um, 
they all deepen considerably for me by studying covenant theology. And, and I'm really hoping that the exact same thing happens for you, that lights go on and you just delight in what you're hearing. Now, I have to admit to all of you that this series is a bit intimidating for me, okay? And I, I want you to know what's behind that. Number one, covenant theology is vast and complex. Number two, covenant theology is controversial. Number three, I'm still learning covenant theology, not an expert. And, and now I'm trying to teach it and preach it clearly and simply. Four, there are smarter, better educated preachers who understand covenant theology much better than I do, and they preach it much better than I do. But I'm, I'm going to be humble. I'm going to try. I'm going to stretch myself. I'm going to trust God, and I'm going to, I'm going to do my best. And five, and this might be the most significant, covenant theology is probably new for the majority of you and may even challenge your entire theological framework. And I want to be sensitive and and gracious and humble in that. I would appreciate your prayers for me and I would appreciate your prayers for our church. Uh, Pray that I am loving. Pray that I am humble and that God unifies us together in sound biblical doctrine. I believe covenant theology is beautiful. It's very precious to me. And, and I believe that it can make you happier and happier in God the more that you understand covenant theology. I want you to analyze and discern everything that you hear me say. Everything. Measure what I say by Scripture. I welcome questions. You can call me. You can email me. You can text me. You can talk with me on Sundays. The elders are currently working through a book on covenant theology together. So, so I, I'm, I'm bringing a rally cry here. Let's come together and let's do this together. Let's, let's work through these doctrines together. Now, I said that covenant is the unifying theme of Scripture. So that's important throughout this entire series. But I'd like to add two other related themes that will also weave throughout this entire series. So you should memorize these three themes. These are very important. You've got to get these down, and we'll review them because they're essential to everything in this series. Here they are. God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign covenants, and God's sovereign grace. You got that? God is sovereign. He has a plan. He works through covenants. He gives abundant grace. God's sovereign plan, covenants, and grace. Remember those. Now, that introduction to this series is probably the longest introduction that I've ever had in a sermon. Um, We still have to cover the Trinity in the remaining time, but... I hope that that intro proves valuable as we go along, that it helps you and sets us up for the coming months. Covenant theology begins with historic Trinitarianism. Historic Trinitarianism. Brown and Keel said, Reformed theologians have rightly confessed that the original pattern for God's covenant with his people is the perfect communion found in the Trinity. Louis Burkhoff added, The archetype of all covenant life is found in the Trinitarian being of God. There is no covenant theology without Trinitarianism. 
Without the Trinity, our, our brief look at the Trinity this morning will be broken down into three simple and memorable points. Number one, God is one. Number two, God is three. And number three, God is relational. God is one, God is three, God is relational. First, God is one. Sound biblical doctrine is unquestionably monotheistic. It has been settled from the beginning there is only one true almighty God. Moses affirmed monotheism in Deuteronomy 4.35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Again, Moses affirmed monotheism in the famous Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then again in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, where the Lord reveals, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. King David affirmed monotheism. He wrote in Psalm 86, verse 10, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. God said through the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus referred to God as the only true God. So Jesus was a monotheist. The Apostle Paul affirmed monotheism in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 by saying, there is no God but one, and then he added in verse 6, yet for us there is one God. James, the half-brother of Jesus, affirmed monotheism, writing to monotheistic Jewish Christians. He said this, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, so even demons are monotheists. But biblical monotheism has been challenged, has been undermined throughout church history. Some even accuse Christians of being tritheists, worshiping three separate gods, which shows how controversial and how perplexing the doctrine of God can be. The largest cult in America claims to worship God the Eternal Father in the name of Jesus Christ. And they believe Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost compose the Godhead. However, and this is the key part, not as a singular being. Mormons unequivocally affirm themselves as Christians, yet they are not monotheistic and they are not Trinitarian, therefore they are not Christians. The historic church creeds affirm monotheism as well. You have to be clear on this. The the ancient Christian creeds are not inspired and inerrant and, and infallible like Scripture is. However, they do give us a wealth of wisdom. They give us knowledge and accountability. They, they help unite us to our brothers and sisters of past ages and give us the benefit of millennia of careful scholarship. Sola Scriptura is essential in Scripture alone, but creeds serve as professors who teach biblical interpretation, right interpretation. Historic and Reformed creeds never, ever, ever supersede Scripture but they help us interpret Scripture properly. Someone once said, all heretics quote Scripture. That's exactly right. I mean, that's right. Uh, There are heretics of the ages who said, the Bible is my book. 
And they twist it because they don't understand it rightly. So to affirm sola scriptura or scripture alone is not a naive, is, is not to naively reject how the church has understood doctrine in the past. Creeds can err, absolutely. Nonetheless, they keep us accountable and prevent us from revamping old heresies. We can learn from past mistakes and past sound scholarship. In other words, you and I are not the first to read the Bible. If we think that, we are being very arrogant, okay? We are not the first to interpret Scripture, and it would be arrogant for us to adopt the motto, it's just me, Jesus, and my Bible. Biblical interpretation happens best alongside of other believers, including the Christian voices of church history. Christianity today has a fascination with newness, Uh, and oftentimes ignores the wisdom and mistakes of theology past, and that's why so much modern evangelical theology is awful, awful, awful. Historic creeds are anchors. The Nicene Creed of 325 AD begins, I believe in one God. The Athanasian Creed, written near the 5th century AD, says, and the Catholic or universal faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. The Heidelberg Catechism affirms monotheism. Question 25 includes the phrase, since there is only one God. And in the answer, it says that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. The Westminster Confession of Faith says there is but one only living and true God. The Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms ask, are there more gods than one? Very relevant question for today. And they both answer very clearly, there is but one only, the living and true God. Absolutely right. Saints, sound biblical doctrine begins with one true God. There is only one. He alone is sovereign and self-sufficient and possesses eternality along with supreme authority, dominion, power, knowledge, wisdom, and glory. There is one true God. And this one true God is our God and is the foundation of all sound doctrine. At the heart of covenant theology is one glorious sovereign God. But unique to monotheistic religions, Orthodox Christian theology and covenant theology is unwaveringly Trinitarian. So then God is three. God is one. God is three. This is called Trinitarianism. There is only one true God, and yet there are three persons in the one true God. R.C. Sproul referred to the Trinity as a touchstone of truth and a non-negotiable article of Christian orthodoxy. So it's essential, folks, and yet it has been attacked through church history. It's being attacked today. And nonetheless, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, has stood strong. It is what Scripture teaches. Satan doesn't want people to know and love and worship the one triune relational God, so he tempts people with clever deviations in order to destroy them, to lay them flat. To not worship the one triune relational God is to worship a false God, is to worship an idol which Satan loves, he enjoys, he wants you to worship your own version of God and not the one true God. 
So let me first articulate the Trinity using historic Christian and Reformed creeds, which I hope guards me against heresy. Let's not burn the pastor after the service. Hopefully I can stay on task here. And then, uh, then I want to move into Scripture, which will substantiate the claims. Okay? The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God, the Father, in Jesus Christ, His only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Nicene Creed was in response to a heretic named Arius, who suggested God's Son was neither eternal nor divine, and was subordinate to the Father, a view still alive today. The Nicene Creed clarifies this beautifully. I believe in one God, the Father, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Right, right. And then it adds this. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Have you thought about that? We worship Father, Son, and Spirit. We glorify. Advance to 1563. Beautiful Heidelberg was written. Answer 24. It refers to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And question 25 asks, since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? There's mystery to that. What's up with that? One and three? What? To which it answers this, because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. The Westminster Confession of Faith clarifies the Trinity really, really well. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is not created by another, nor is He begotten or proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. The Westminster Larger Catechism adds that the three persons of the Godhead are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now, folks, the creeds, those creeds derive directly from Scripture. They're great statements bringing all kinds of Scripture together to make a definitive, clear statement on the Trinity. So here is a smattering of Scripture Way too many for us to turn to, but here's a smattering to confirm these statements. Let's begin in the Old Testament. The first line of the Bible is what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the next verse, it mentions the Spirit of God. Paul elaborated on that in Colossians 1.16. He wrote of Jesus now, For by him all things were created, all things were created through him and for him. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all active at the beginning in creation. Creating the world. In Genesis 1.26, the one God now says this, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Later in Genesis 3.22, God added, Behold, 
the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Take Isaiah 9, verse 6, the famous Christmas passage that you're probably familiar with. For to us a child is born, a precious child. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. You know the next one? Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay, so the child is born a human being, but he is also given, he is sent, and his name will be Mighty God, Everlasting Father. There's something to that, folks. Now take Matthew 1, verse 23, which says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. So the child born of the virgin is fully God. All three persons of the Trinity were distinct and present at the baptism of Jesus. We are to baptize people, and we did this with with Audrey, which was a wonderful thing a, a little bit ago. We are to baptize in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So here's a question for you. Is the Son distinct from the Father and yet fully God? Good question. To which I say, absolutely. Absolutely, without a question. John 1.1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word there refers to Jesus Christ, God's Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That shows distinction. And the Word was God. That shows oneness and equality. There you have it. John 5.18 recounts how Jesus was calling God his own Father, which the Jews equated to making himself equal with God. They didn't like it. That's why they wanted to stone him. They wanted to kill him. In John 8, Jesus told the Jews in the temple, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Do you you know what, what that would mean for Jesus to say, before Abraham was, who lived many years before him, I am. That is a clear and an unequivocal statement of divinity. I am Yahweh, is what he was saying. I am the Lord. I am God. And each of his seven famous I am statements were unambiguous claims to be God. Jesus said in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. You see that distinct and yet one. Another angle, consider that Jesus Christ received worship and praise from human beings. That ought to be like, whoa, what? Only God receives worship, and he received it and welcomed it. Uh, Jesus received Thomas's worship when Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus, just, he didn't say this, but his, his, yes, yes. Paul was Trinitarian. He said in Colossians 2.9, For in him, speaking of Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. So what about the Holy Spirit? Okay, well, first of all, the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God. That's a huge clue right there. Big clue. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11, Paul explained it this way, For the Spirit searches everything, 
even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The spirit of God knows God. He is God. He knows the deepest recesses of the counsels of God. In Acts 5.3, Peter, in this very vivid account, uh, mentioned that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. Awful things happen in that story. But then in verse 4, he said, you have not lied to man, but to God. The Holy Spirit is God. There is only one true almighty God, and yet the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. This is orthodox Christian doctrine. This is right. This is what God has revealed to us. And so I want to come back to you and say, is the Trinity precious to you? Is it precious? Do you love and serve the Trinity, the triune God of Scripture? And let me really press in here. Are you able to discern deviations from the Trinitarian view of God when people get it wrong? Do you know? William P. Young wrote the book The Shack. Bestseller, millions of copies. They made a movie of it. The Shack is filled with heresy. Filled with heresy. And yet many Christians, very oddly, celebrated the book not seeming to object to its blasphemous anti-Trinitarian view of God. The shack seems to be modalism revamped. Modalism was uh, the view of third century heretic Sibelius who presented God as one person who manifests himself in three different modes at various times. The shack undermines historic Trinitarianism and aligns with a heresy the church has long rejected. It's not even new. Discerning Christians should not applaud that which undermines the triune God they love. He doesn't like that when he is misrepresented. Christians are not tritheists. Christians are not modalists. They are Unwaveringly, Trinitarians. One God, yet three distinct eternal persons who are the same in substance and equal in power and glory. Do you adore the one triune relational God? You see, Trinitarian is not simply fundamental to covenant theology, but it's fundamental to our love of God and salvation. We can't get very far in theology without triunity. There's one more point I'd like to make that is extremely important to this series. God is relational. God is one. God is three. God is relational. 1 John 4 says, God is love. How cool is that? That's beautiful. God is love. Love is the nature of God. Please pay very close attention to this point. This, This might be new for some of you to think of it this way. Before God created anything, the Father, Son, and Spirit were perfectly loving and relating to one another. God did not need to create humanity in order to express love. He was already expressing it in eternity. God was expressing love eternally within the Trinity. God is eternally and lovingly relational. We call this perichoresis, 
or the mutual indwelling of the three persons of the Godhead. Now, at that word, some of you are like, done, tapping out, you know. Don't tap out, all right? You can get this. Listen carefully. In other words, the three persons exist in one another. The Father is in the Son and Spirit. The Son is in the Father and Spirit. The Spirit is in the Father and Son. The three divine persons are indivisible. They're indivisible. This must be considering there is only one divine essence, and yet each of the three persons possesses the divine essence fully. Blowing our minds. God blowing our minds. We have to be careful here. Very careful, which I am trying to be. So then, within the Godhead, there is perfect and mutual harmony and unanimity and agreement and loving relationship. Beautiful. The Father perfectly loves and relates to the Son and Spirit. The Son perfectly loves and relates to the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit perfectly loves and relates to the Father and the Son. This is intra-Trinitarian love. And that intra-Trinitarian love is the basis for God expressing His love for His people through covenants. Perichoresis can be seen in John 14, 9 through 11, where Jesus told this to Philip, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Theologian Dr. D.A. Carson helps us understand this intra-Trinitarian love and relationship. He wrote this, The Father commands, sends, tells, commissions, and demonstrates His love for the Son by showing Him everything, such that the Son does whatever the Father does. The Son obeys, says only what the Father gives Him to say, does only what the Father gives Him to do, comes into the world as the sent one, and demonstrates His love for the Father precisely by such obedience. This pattern of love both relational and constitutional, in the very being of God becomes, according to Jesus, the model and incentive of our relation to Jesus. If we love Him, we will obey Him. Here, if we obey Him, we remain in His love, thereby our relation to Jesus mirrors the relation of Jesus to His heavenly Father. We have to get intra-Trinitarian love. If we don't, it's just, there's so much that's going to break down. God is relational. Saints, I know that the concept of the Trinity is perplexing. I know that I cannot fully describe it. There is much mystery here. There is much glory here. After all, we're speaking of God, an infinite being. Do you think I'm going to be able to... Look at me. Do you think this guy can make this clear? Man, alive. God is... So awesome that we, we, we have to be careful. We can know him as he truly is, but he just blows our minds. The inner Trinitarian love and relationship of God 
can help us make better sense of other very essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And so here are a few texts to confirm this intra-Trinitarian love. Just delight in this. This is beautiful. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus said in John 5.19 and 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. That's beautiful. Beautiful. The Son's perfect obedience to the Father reveals his love for the Father. Jesus said in John 14, 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me. So that, so here's the purpose. Why is he obeying? Why is he doing all the law when it is at personal cost to him? Why, Jesus, why would you obey the law of God? So that the world may know that I love the Father. I love this God. Jesus was so overwhelmed by love for God. And that's why he was the type of man that he was. This deep love. Then Jesus said in John 15, 9 and 10, as the Father has loved me, this is spectacular, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Beautiful, glorious, infinite love in the Trinity. Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 is a great place where where you see the mutual glory of the Father and Son, each working to glorify the other. Jesus talked about intra-Trinitarian love and prayed to the Father, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is the same divine love God pours into his people through the Holy Spirit. This is the divine love that we receive and share in Christ. At Jesus' baptism and transfiguration, the Father said what? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Oh, do I love my Son and oh, am I super pleased with Him and all that He's doing. Amazing. Where does the Holy Spirit come in? Well, Jesus said about the Spirit in John 16, 14, He will glorify me. For He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit glorifies the Son. What an act of love. And then in Romans 5, 5, Paul talked about God's love being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. The Holy Spirit is the means by which God loves us. Saints, it is this one triune relational God who entered into gracious covenant with us. It is this one triune relational God who lavished his covenant love on us in Christ. This God is sovereign. This God has a plan. This God has entered into gracious covenant with us who trust him. This God has given us lavish grace. When we were lost and dead in sin, estranged from God, this one triune relational God worked to reconcile us to himself. The Father, Son, and Spirit worked in in beautiful and precious harmony to bring us into loving relationship with him to enjoy their love. Everyone who trusts Christ and therein enjoys union with Christ by faith is the object, get this, the object of the full extent of the triune God's affection. If you are in Christ today, the fullness of God's love, triune love, is poured out for you. He has affection for you. He, he must. He's bound by his covenant promises. 
The Father loves everyone who is in Christ to the same extent he loves Christ. In order to explore the depths of the upcoming doctrines in this series, we must begin with the one triune relational God. We must adore him. We must cherish him. We must treasure him. And we must trust every single word that he communicates to us in his word, in his scripture. It is this glorious triune and relational God who has revealed himself to us in creation and in scripture. And every word of the Bible is working to direct our love and devotion to him, the one triune relational God. So what is the purpose of this entire series? What what is the ultimate purpose of covenant theology? It, It might help for you to know that from the beginning. Doxology. Doxology. Praise God, praise Him, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's pray. God, you have been gracious to us to reveal yourself to us in Scripture, and I pray that my brothers and sisters, and even those who are outside the covenant this morning who don't believe in Jesus, I pray that all of us with with unity would be able to see your splendor and glory and beauty as the one triune relational God. I pray that we will not invent pictures. I pray that we will steer clear of analogies to try to communicate the Trinity. They're dangerous. They all fall short. You cannot be summarized. You can be taught clearly. We can believe in in the God of Scripture and be clear that you are one, three, and relational. And yet, how could we comprehend the fullness of who you are? It's going to take eternity for us to just go deeper and deeper into your character, Father, Son, and Spirit. We love you, God, and I pray that you will make these things clear to us. None of us understands any of this, nor gives a hoot about it until your sovereign grace opens our eyes to show us the stunning glory and reality of a one triune relational God. We need your spirit to move or all of us leave here bored. And so God, I pray that you will break in past our dull minds, past our human inability, past our depravity, and shatter it and reveal to us beauty. Beauty and glory in the one true God. We love you, Father. We love you, Son. We love you, Spirit. And we are so grateful for the work of redemption that you have all contributed to making happen for us. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.